for this music this morning. We are starting a time where Jesus has wandered off into a quiet place and is looking for those eagle's wings, you know, to comfort in the space of, of being alone out in the desert, is what the scripture is talking to us about today. And I think whenever we go into some place like that, and it's going to be hard teaching or something difficult for us to hear, I think we sort of need to laugh at ourselves first right? It's helpful to laugh at ourselves first and know that we are human. And so we're going to hear something from the gospel of Flip Wilson. Some of you remember him? Some of you remember the Ed Sullivan show? So we're going to hear from the gospel of Flip Wilson when he was on the Ed Sullivan show to get us to laugh at ourselves first. So pay attention to this. She came in the house. She had the box. Reb saw it. Reb said, what? Another dress? This is ridiculous. Three dresses in a week? Another dress? And she tells him, I didn't want to buy this dress. <laughs> the devil made me buy this dress. <laughs> she said, I was going down the street. I was minding my own business, singing to myself. I said, what you said? <laughs> and the devil stopped following me, telling me how good I look. <laughs> Rep said, I'm not going for that. He said, because every time you do something wrong, you blame it on the devil. So you blamed it on the devil when you were in the car under the side of the church. She tells him, it was the devil. You wasn't there. How do you know? So he grabbed that steering wheel out of my hand. Griff said, well, why didn't you step on the brake? She tells him, because when he grabbed the steering wheel, I tried to kick him. I can't kick him and step on the brake at the same time. Said we had a big fight. That's why I was in the back seat when y'all got the call. Rep said, well, how the devil gets you to buy the dress? She said, I was going down the street, I was singing, but you said on me every day. And I heard the devil coming up behind me, he was tiptoeing, and I said to myself, I'm not going to look back, because I know it's the devil. <laughs> and then he sneaked up and leaned over my shoulder and said, hey, mama, look at that dress in the window there. Said, it's on sale, so that's your size, too. Got a lot of flowers. You know you like a lot of flowers. Why don't you treat yourself to that dress? I said, cut that out, devil. <laughs> I ain't buying no dresses. You better leave me alone, honey. <laughs> devil said, well, why don't you try it on? You can try it on. Rev will never know about you trying it on. It's free. They're not going to charge you nothing to try it on. You owe yourself to try on. I said, I'm not even trying it on, devil. I'm not even going to go in there and look at it. That's when the devil shoved me in the door. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, those of you who remember, that was a catchphrase for quite a while. The devil made me do it. It became quite popular. And I just want us to laugh at ourselves because sometimes in life we look for those things outside ourselves to blame for stuff we really want to do ourselves. You know, the devil made me buy that dress. You know, really? I think he might have just wanted a dress all your own. You know, so sometimes we try to look outside ourselves when it's something going on inside us. We try and project it beyond ourselves. And there's a challenge with this when we're, when we're talking about the devil in this way. And I want to tell you in this gospel of Flip Wilson, he's actually treating it very much like a first century Jewish person would treat it. And how Bishop Shelby Spong treats it. Bishop John Shelby Spong says this, and he agrees with Flip Wilson. My biggest problem with personifying evil as the devil is that it removes responsibility from the person who has behaved in ways that we might call evil. It makes it sound like whatever they were doing was beyond their control. How convenient for them. 
Mm, he's agreeing with Flip Wilson here. And Bishop Spong goes on to say this. The way I reframe this is to understand that when we do things that are wrong, immoral, or hurtful, we are acting out of our lower ego selves. We are acting out of the side of ourselves that has been hurt before, that is broken, that is fearful. Sometimes we call this our shadow side. They are the things that obstruct us in our thinking, are our obstacles to acting as love would have us act. Bishop Spong agrees with Flip Wilson and with first century Jews who, when they would hear Jesus tell this story, wouldn't hear Jesus blaming his choices on something outside himself. They would hear Jesus talking about the struggle he had with himself and what might be the temptations in this ministry he's about to embark on and engaging each of those challenges and actually coming back and sharing with them. These are the challenges and the struggle that's going on within me right now, and it's not who I'm going to be. You know, coming back and telling it. That's how they would hear it. Today, in our culture, we normally hear it, and we think of, oh, God, you devil, you know, George Burns, or some other personification where uh, the devil or Satan has been risen up in power to be almost equal to God. You know what? That is not in the Bible. That is not what Jesus was talking about. And the people of that day that were listening to Jesus share this story would not have thought that. They would have heard him telling about his spiritual journey in the wilderness and what he had learned and what he was bringing back to share with them about who he was. Interesting how things change. Blame it on Milton if you want. Blame it on Dante if you want. They have wonderful stories about this. But it's not in the Bible. It's not in the story of first century Christians or the Jewish heritage that we come from. But we sometimes really, really want something to blame. You know, what's going on within us is just too much. And we want to put it outside us some way. And we want to project it on someone else. You know, have you ever had anybody project something onto you? You know, and you said, that's about you, darling. Have you ever done that yourself? Projected on someone else and then later find out, oh, glory, that was about me. I preached a sermon one time in Chicago and six months later I looked back at it and I said, oh, I was talking to myself. You know, watch out, watch out. You know, projection is a real thing and it's blaming out there something that's within us. It just is out of our own pain and our own discomfort and our own hope that we can't contain it, that we have to put it out there somewhere instead of try to walk through it and process it ourselves. So we might ask ourselves, what are we uncomfortable with today that we're doing that with? What does it mean to not be able to process it inside ourselves? And what Jesus is saying for him, those things were lust, and they were fear, and they were greed. You know, you might call it hunger and safety and prestige, but really it was deeper than that. It was about lust and about fear and about greed. You know, they're not bad things, though, because Jesus actually says no in the story to these things, but then Jesus goes on and feeds thousands of people at a time. Jesus goes on and heals, makes safe hundreds of people, makes them whole. You know? People invites people into a kingdom, into a world, a political reality that's based on love and peace. <laughs> And it's an invitation instead of a coercion. 
So even though Jesus said no to each of these things, when you look at his ministry, you know, there were some things about it that he did, but in his own way, not in the way that the culture would have expected him to be as the Messiah, as the one who's going to save us. So Jesus says no in this story as he's telling it to folks. But you know those temptations, Tim, I think they were like comfort food. You know, it looks really good, tastes really good, may not last that long, also may not be good for you, but for the moment, you know, maybe it feels okay. Those temptations are like comfort food. And don't forget that it is the spirit that led Jesus into that quiet place. You know, sometimes we, and when we're in those moments of struggle in our life, we want to name it as bad, you know, that we're having to struggle with these things. But it's the Spirit. And the way Jesus tells us, it's God who brought me to this place of quiet where I had to wrestle with these temptations that are going on within me. And I had to make decisions about who I am and who I need to be in this world, whether or not it disappoints anyone else or not. This is who I am. Interesting, the scripture that's being told and how he wrestled with scripture back and forth. And the way Jesus tells it, I want you to hear this lesson, queer people at Resurrection United Methodist Church and allies. What Jesus does is he shows us that everyone who quotes scripture does not have your best interest at heart. Hear that? Everyone who quotes scripture does not have your best interest at heart. And the way another scholar says it, her name's Sarah, she says, Jesus will not accept just any word of scripture as God's word to him at that moment. He will not accept just any word that's being thrown at him, even if it's within his own struggling, as God's word at that moment. Remember that. I know some folks who like to open their Bible and do this and point to a particular voice and say, that's God's word for me today. Don't do that. Release that. You know, go into the struggle. God's asking you to wrestle a little more deeply than that with what's going on in your life. Wanting you to come out the other side of the wilderness a different person to know who you are. So this blame thing is around us all the time. I was at our um, counter demonstration this week to a press rally that was being held over on Richmond. And it was people of faith who were going to talk about how bad it was that gay people might have equality in Houston, what that would look like. And this horrible thing this judge did by knocking out the constitutional amendment that Texas passed. And so resurrection folk with other uh, clergy and people of faith gathered outside the building while they were having this press conference. And we prayed while they were having this press conference inside. And it was interesting that there were more resurrection people there than anyone else. I'm proud of that. Yeah, proud of that. And as we prayed down the line, we took turns praying, going down the line, and there were a couple of resurrection people together, and one of them was praying with a very loud voice, because I could hear him seven people down. And as he was praying with this loud voice, he said, we pray for you and your families. We want you to not have such a high divorce rate. We want you to not, well, there he is, he's smiling and laughing right up there. You know, we want you to be blessed by God and to know love that lasts. I am thankful for the blessings of God who gave me my 16-year relationship. Thank you, God, for blessing my family. We pray for your families and all families. You know, 
And what I heard in that when I was praying for uh, the sermon this morning, I said he was saying, don't project your own stuff on us. Don't blame us for your own challenges with faithfulness and sexuality and fidelity. Don't blame us for what it is you need to go in the wilderness and work on yourself. Don't do it. Well, after we prayed, then the press people came from out, outside, from inside the building, and they started to interview the people who were praying. And so if you watched the news that night, every time you saw anything about this press conference, you also saw one of us. And I want to tell you this, Resurrection people, we will never, ever let a local event like that happen where people are going to say bad things about gay people without having another voice there for the camera to put it on. And every station carried it. Had Michael Diaz and some other people of our team right there, right there saying, this is not the word that you need to hear alone. Let me tell you about my family. Stop putting it on us, people. Stop putting it on us, please. So we will continue to do that. Hear it again. Jesus says, not every word of scripture is the word for you at that moment. Not everyone tossing scripture around is doing it for your good. So blame is something we like to do when things are tough for us. Another thing we like to do when we can't cope, it's not a like thing, it's more of a being thing, is we somehow really believe that we just aren't enough. And this is where shame comes in. We don't project it outside ourselves, it's turned inward on ourselves from the stories people have told us, whatever it is, we come to this place in our life where we believe we're just not enough. We're just not enough. And that's a statement of shame. Not that you did something bad, you know, not that you ate something you shouldn't have eaten or didn't do what you wanted to do, but that your very being, something is wrong, it's just not enough. And out of this comes all of these temptations, all of these hurts and wants and longings that we try to remedy in different ways. Shame says that we, that we just can't ever make the mark, we're always gonna miss it. And in the process of responding to what the shame's impacts are on our life, we pretend we're something we're not. We pretend like we're something we're not. We even put on a false mask at times so others might like us. You know, so that we are palatable for the rest of the world. I want you to know, Benet Brown has done a lot of good research on shame. And that undergirds her work and daring greatly in the other work she's done. And, and she says this one little short sentence in her book. It says, we are the most obese, medicated, addicted, in debt Americans ever. We are the most obese, medicated, addicted, in debt Americans ever. I would add to obese all eating disorders. It goes back to lust, fear, greed. It's interesting. Digs right back into the things in the scripture that Jesus was talking about were tempting him. It's been around a long time. What can we fill ourselves up with? What can we medicate ourselves up with? What can make us feel good enough that we have power over other things? What materialism will help us not just walk into the wilderness and deal with the fact that God actually really loves us and that's too uncomfortable for us to feel? Because we know better than God that we're not enough. 
So here we go. Shame is universal. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm going to tell you right now, you all have it. Every single one of you, somewhere in your life, have had shame. You may not have known what to name it, but it's been there. And what's interesting is we don't like to talk about it, and the more we don't talk about it, the more power it has over us. We feel like we're unworthy of love, unworthy of belonging. We'll do what culture says, fit in, please people, be nice, be liked. Get more expensive clothes even if you do go in debt. The devil maybe do it. You know, those things we do in that mask to make us fit in, feel good enough. They aren't the core. They don't address what is there, this feeling of not enough. Shame is universal, and we need to address it and root it out of our lives as best we can. So I hope you might participate in some of these studies this Lent, particularly Wednesday nights, to talk about what it means in your life. Have you ever had who you are just beat out of you? You know, I remember being trained on what it was like to be a little boy by my grandmother, my aunt, and my mom. What the three of them thought it meant to be a little boy Tell you what, I disappointed them royally. <laughs> but they were trying to toughen me up. You know, what does it mean to have people try to train out of you that which you are and how you are created? You know, it creates that core message in there that you are not enough and you will never be enough. And there's nothing you can do to change that, but that's not how God sees you. I want to share a story with you of Rachel Naomi Rimmon, who in her medical training had an experience of what it was like to have a part of herself trained out of her. She was doing a pediatric, pediatric residency, and in the process of doing that, she found herself waiting till everyone left the floor, and she would go in to where the most sick little children were, and in those places with those sick children, she would find the little toy that they were missing and put it up against them. Against them. She would squeeze their hand, and for the ones who were really crying and in pain, she might even sing a little song to them. She said she waited till everyone left because she didn't know what the others would think of her. And they were mostly men, so she wasn't sure that those mostly men would actually be proud of her singing to the babies and occasionally kissing them on the forehead. So she did it after hours. But she felt like she needed to do it. Then one day in her medical residency, she was out in the corridor talking to some parents about their child that was sick, and she saw her chief resident, Stan, she saw him over the parent's shoulder, and she saw him in with a child with leukemia, a little girl, and she saw Stan lean over and kiss the little girl on the forehead. And she thought, wow, I'm not alone. Someone else is doing this as well. We may be able to form a support group and help each other. You know what it means to be in medical school together. We might be able to really, really do something different and at least listen to one another. And so she waited for a moment, and there was a time when she and Stan were alone in the room getting ready to go in to do a C-section. So they were cleaning up, and she said, Oh, Stan, I saw you kiss the little girl on the forehead, and it really meant a lot to me. Stan looked at her like she was crazy and said, It never happened. It never happened. Rachel says that they went through the rest of their residency together, 36-hour shifts on, 12 shifts hours off. They were good drinking buddies and you know, sharing all this together, but it, the incident was never spoken of again. 
She said she stopped kissing babies then. It felt like it was too much risk. Then after a while, she reflects on it and she says, you know, it was, medical training was like a disease and I've had to unlearn it. What does it mean in our lives when culture, even people who know us, train us to be something we're not? What does it mean to have compassion trained out of you, connection, longing, hope for others to be trained out of you? It doesn't just happen to doctors. Happens to lawyers, happens to teachers, happens to clergy, happens to all sorts of folks. What does it mean to be trained out of you, to have yourself trained out of you? Even if it's your aunt and your grandmother and your mom working together, that's a holy triumvirate right there. You know, what is it to not be authentic, to be good because other people want you to be a certain way? That's what Dr. Brown's work is about. Her work is about what does it mean to release, to release all these behaviors we've learned because of what others think of us, to release the masks that we put on that we're almost so comfortable with after Mardi Gras, we keep them on all year. What does it mean to release those things so that you can be truly who you are and how God made you, beautifully and wonderfully made? What does it mean to reclaim that part of yourself that you don't have anymore because it was trained away. Authenticity. What does it mean to be authentic? It's that daily practice of releasing all the what I'm supposed to be, all the this won't make them happy, all the others expect of you, and to embrace who you are, who you truly are, human, and made in the image of God, beautiful and claimed that you are enough. You know, Jesus comes back from his walkabout in the wilderness, his vision quest that he's reporting on. He comes back from that experience, and he could have kept it all to himself. He didn't have to tell anyone this account. But what Jesus does is say, this is what I've been struggling with. Well, and he shared what it was like to struggle with it, and he shared what his decision was after the struggle. He didn't hide it. He didn't stuff it down. He actually shared it with them. And he said, this may disappoint you, but it's who I am. This may not be what you expected as a savior, but it's how you'll be saved. This may not be what all your dreams and visions were, but it's what God has given for you at this moment in time for your healing so that you may know that you are enough as well. So what does Jesus really do? He forgoes the comfort foods. He comes back out after his time in the wilderness. And what does he do? What we do. He comes out. If you didn't catch on by now, this is Jesus's coming out story. This is who I am, people. Love me or not, this is who you are, God's beloved child, worthy, you are enough. And Jesus says, go ahead, wrestle, learn for yourself what you need to learn, experience it, talk about it, share it with others. Don't let anyone train out of you that which God has made in you. Amen. Come out.